My name is Cindy Blackburn. I'm going to give you a little bit of time to look up Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. And when you get done, just turn around to someone behind you and say, building our riches in heaven. Ooh. Wow, you guys are on it. Okay. We are talking about the rich young man. It says, and he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, in the words of the evangelist Luke Bryan, rain is a good thing? <laughs> Just thought I'd start off light today with today's topics. I'm really excited, though, for today just to be with you guys and to continue our series. We've been in a series since the beginning of this year called Being Human, and it seems to need some introduction, obviously, every week of what are we talking about? Because in a world that we live in, being a human is not necessarily an easy task, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. And so what I want to do before we start is just to open up in a quick word of prayer over God's word today that he would speak to us, and not just speak to us, but that we would also listen um, I think I'm very convicted of that myself sometimes, even doing my yearly Bible plan. If you're doing one of those, I commend you to making it to February. Congrats. You're not the 9% we talked about a few weeks ago. And so, but again, as we read God's word, that we not only just read it to get it off our agenda, but for it to actually change our agenda, not just for us to make it part of our agenda. So pray with me if you would, just a quick word. Lord, so often I'm guilty to rush a moment with you. It can't come soon enough, but Lord, if I'm honest, I feel like it's gone faster than I'd like. 
And so, Lord, today as a body of believers, we gather around your word. The word that's endured through the centuries. Through hardship and persecution, this word has seen it all. It has watched many men and women battle this thing we call life as human beings. Led by your spirit. And Lord, today we pray that you would give us that same boldness to read your word and for us to open our minds to what you want us to actually hear. Lord, today's topic is not light, but there's nothing too heavy for you. Lord, let us have hearts today that are willing to look at what it truly means to be a human being and to be human as you've called us to be human. Cultivate in us a heart that receives what you have. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, as we started this series, the Being Human series, there was a big conviction that we had, uh, and I'm going to repeat it every single week because I think as churches, and I say that collectively, just Big C Church, there's a big tendency that churches have a tendency to do, and that is to become really busy. Um, And one way you can know you're busy is when you look at the calendar. And so what we're doing as a church, the, the board, our staff, we've been continuing to look at what do we really want to do in 2024 besides being busy? So you can do a lot of things. Parents, we can do a lot of things with our kids, but there's nothing like just being with our kids. Amen? And I think as, as i getting older, I have now a soon-to-be four-year-old, I'm starting to really understand it's not just about doing things with them, but it's about who they're becoming. And so we started this series with a conviction, and this conviction will lead us for a few more weeks The sermon series conviction is who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. Who you're becoming in life, at your job, in your marriage, in your friendships, who you're actually becoming is way more important than what you're doing. We do a lot of things, but we don't focus a lot of times on who we're becoming. We don't monitor the things that we say. We looked at a few weeks ago. We don't look at the things that we even think about sometimes without just saying them or thinking them, realizing the damage that they're doing to our hearts and our minds. And so again, who we're becoming is more important than what you're doing. So that's our conviction for this series. And again, that's going to be continuing the next few weeks. I want to start with a story. There was a story I read this week. I read a a book, and you'll love the title of this book. You ready for it? God and Money. Yeah. Not pulling any, like that's just what the book's about. Um, And it was a great book, but it had a story about this couple, Graham and April Smith. They're residents of New York City, and these two specifically went to college, and Graham especially went to college, and he graduated and got a degree, and he said, I want to go to Wall Street after he graduates college, goes to Wall Street, but he has a conviction. As a young man, he starts to see the power that money has in young people. In other words, what we spend our money on at 18 and 21 is going to be different than what we spend our money on in our 60s. Okay, so just a little heads up there. Okay, you're going to start thinking about retirement. What's a 401k, right? No one even knows. But the idea is Graham went to college and graduated college with a conviction that he wanted to go to Wall Street and listen to his conviction that he says. Graham went to Wall Street with the plans to make a lot of money. Okay, there you go. But he also wanted to give 90% of his income away and live off of 10%. While he was at college, he also got to meet his future wife at that time. It would be his future wife, but it would be his girlfriend, April. 
a recent graduate with a similar desire to give herself away for God's kingdom. Graham and April Smith found each other through generosity, and I was reading their story, and you got to love a good romance story, right? Like, what brought them together, right? So this is what they said, and, and obviously in our topic today, their, their story is so impactful the way they word this. This is the way the interviewer put it into words. They both love to give, and some say they live to give as a couple. They live to give. And I just thought to myself, in a world where we are constantly saying to get, what would it look like if we had a relationship where we were, the whole basis was to give, to give, not get, but to give. And so I thought to myself, what a beautiful story. And their story doesn't end there, obviously, is with this idea of generosity of to live off of 10% and to give 90, this is called reverse tithing. And so what they did was they wanted to, to live off the 10%, and the Lord blessed them. They made a lot of money, even with living off of 10%. They had roommates, by the way. So they were married, made a whole bunch of money, and they all had roommates, enough roommates to cover their mortgage or their rent. So married couples, if you better have a roommate, whether it be your in-laws or whatever, they were like making money off of it. So there you go. You go home and start charging them some rent. But the idea was they wanted to have enough excess funds to be able to do that sort of thing, and they actually got inspired. And this is what I love. If you guys don't know, I kind of my first job was in the restaurant industry. So just working at Steak and Shake, frying up those good old hamburgers. They wanted to open up a restaurant, and they said, we want to open up a restaurant that gives away 100% of their profits, 100%. Not, not 10, not 5, not 15, 100%. And if any good business person out there is like, is that a good idea? right? Like, isn't to get into business to make profit? And they're like, yes. And that profit is going to go to a purpose. And, I, and so this is what they did is they opened up what's called an impact investing restaurant in New York City. It's a vegan restaurant in New York, which I'm not a vegan. So please don't say I'm sitting here trying to advocate for veganism. I'm just saying that they opened up a vegan restaurant and the Lord blessed it. And they made a lot of money doing it. And they were able to continue to give. And I love the way that they said why they wanted to do this. They said, we're turning cauliflower meals into funds for baby food. They're turning cauliflower meals into baby food. And I thought to myself, what a mission for a restaurant. I mean, you and your wife can go out and have dinner and then in response, 100% of the restaurant's profits is going to benefit missions. And they, they even did that for, for a, a baby food company in Haiti. But I have a question for you in this story. You might think to yourself when you hear a story like this, that's so radical. Like, wow, the Lord's just amazing in them. What if we've got the wrong story and they think that it's just normal to do that? As, as we look at what they're doing, we instantly think, I could never do that. Or if you're a business brain like me, you're like, that's a really bad idea. I want to retire at 40. You know what I'm saying? Their idea was completely different. And I share that story with you because let's be real. Let's be real. You ready for it? I'm going to rip the Band-Aid off as I tell my son because you've got to rip it off because if you go slow, it's going to hurt even more, right? Why is talking about finances weird, especially in church? At a dinner party, it's who makes the most. And you already start to gauge that by what they pulled up in, what they wrote up in. Then you check out the fit, right? Do a fit check. You look at the shoes. You're like, those are new. Those are new. I joke with Gary Crow. I'm like, is that Tommy Hilfiger? He instantly told me, and I love Gary, so hopefully he's okay with me sharing this. But he instantly told me how much the shirt cost. I'm like, whoa, the shirt, yeah. But, but I say that because what we do as humans is we naturally evaluate each other. And I say that as a joke. Obviously, Gary, I love you. Seven bucks. <laughs> See? Like, congrats, right? 
not about you, Gary. No, I'm just kidding. But I say that because finances can make us uncomfortable. And especially, here's the crazy part about what we're in today. This is called a what that we're sitting in. It's called West Side Church. And we say it's all about Jesus. Okay, so that's our mission. That's what we're here for. But what's interesting is when we get to the topic of finances, all of us instantly, where's my wallet at? Right? You instantly, you instantly start to think, well, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, and let's not talk about the rest. But I just, I have an illustration because I think obviously in a church, when you see one of these, don't worry, don't worry. This is, I'm just kidding. There, anyway, there's a bunch of stories I could share, but I won't. But wh- why even the, the, the feeling of this being passed around arguably would make the majority of us uncomfortable? Obviously, if you're an online giver, then that, you're going to be like, well, what's this thing, right? You just bought your phone. But the idea is this is an illustration of giving, is we used to pass the plate. It's a crazy concept. We used to do it a few years ago. And, and now we have the black offering boxes, which I'm nothing against the offering boxes, but I'm just saying this visual itself, when you see this in a normal setting, you're like, what do, they, what do they need my money for? I thought this was about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we'll take a Benjamin, please. Right? <laughs> but why is that? So I, I share that illustration with you because that's just one illustration. But what's interesting in the world we live in is the Lord does a lot of things kind of unknown for us. And that's in the church we see an offering plate. But when you're leaving Walmart, you see this. And you think to yourself, Bet you they deserved it. Well, I mean, my dad always taught me to give them food, not money. And regardless of what comes into your mind when you see this, I use it as an illustration that finances, when someone's asking for something, we instantly have a heart transaction taking place. Many of us in this this room, we see a sign like this, and you instantly can probably think about how your parents or your grandparents taught you how to handle these situations. I was actually with my in-laws over Christmas break, and we had a guy come up to us. I was putting my son in the car, which that's a whole other ballgame when you're putting your kid in the car and someone comes up, hey, excuse me, excuse me. And the first thing he said to me, I'm not homeless. I just need some money. And obviously he wasn't holding a sign, but the idea was very simple that I instantly started thinking, where's my wallet? Now, I say that because money makes us uncomfortable. But when we turn to Scripture, there's something interesting that I don't think many of us slow down to realize. Do you know the most consistent topic that Jesus talks about? Oh, yeah, we're going there today, folks. Now, I say this because and I'm not trying to say it with any specific agenda. Okay, I want to just obviously with, with everything in light of, of going on, I want to be ignorant to what we're talking about here. This has been on my heart to talk about. Regardless of anything else, this is always on a pastor's heart, is to talk to his people about the stronghold that money has on the human heart. I mean, the the old saying is, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you value. There's always a really humbling experience when you get your monthly credit card bill, right? Some of you don't use credit cards. I'm no shame, okay? But when you look at it, you instantly see, how much money did I spend at the gas station? And at Walmart and on Amazon, right? I don't care how much credit card rewards you get per transaction. You get to see where your heart is. And I thought to myself, you know, the most consistent topic that Jesus talks about throughout his ministry is money. 2,000 
350 times, Jesus speaks either about something pertaining to money, pertaining to possessions, or our attitude towards our possessions. There's these things called parables. We're going to look at those in a few months, actually. We're going to look at a bunch of parables. But 11 of the 39 parables of Jesus revolve around money. 11 out of 39. You can do quick math. That's a lot. I ask you that because I say this very sincerely. Do you think Jesus really needs your money? But do we also know that Jesus really, really wants to get to the root of what it takes for you to see who he is? That, that you can't buy him? That you can't give even 100% away to receive more grace? There's a story of someone in the Bible where she gives a penny. Barely enough to even make a, make a sound for ancient tradition. But she does it because it's out of the abundance of her need not of her fruit in excess. And I think to myself, when I, when I read that 2,350 verses, 11 out of the 39 parables, you know, that means one out of every seven verses Jesus talked about money. And so in Matthew 6, there's this very simple thing, there's this very simple saying that Jesus has, is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why would Jesus say such a gripping statement? I mean, in, in ancient Jerusalem, obviously, we have a different culture where money allows opportunity. And there's no difference in that today. Would you agree? If you have a lot of money, you have a lot of opportunity. There's nothing better than seeing some of, my, you know, some of your friends from high school, and they're like, are they, are they on a cruise? And you instantly are jealous, right? You're like, well, I wish I would have known. I would have you know, or you try to one-up them. That's, you're either one or two people. You either get super jealous or you try to one-up the other person. You're like, well, I'm going to Cancun. And you're like, whoa, whoa. And you make it this keeping up with the Joneses idea. I say that because my big idea, and we're going to talk about it today in Mark chapter 10, is this. Here's the big idea. We expose who we are not by what we give, but by what we keep. We expose who we are, not by what we give, but by what we keep. You guys know I love statistics, right? It's the old avid verbiage, 90% of statistics are made up. Who knows if that's true, right? But here's some statistics that I want to call the great American imbalance. The great American imbalance. 62% of Americans, according to CNBC, Live paycheck to paycheck. 62% as of last year. 74% of Americans say they are stressed about finances. Now, I, I, I read that and I'm like, that's not 100? <laughs> right? You're like, I'm definitely in the 74%. But I thought to myself, okay, so three out of four people, you instantly start talking about finances, they can instantly think about limitations that they have financially whether it be a bill that's in collections, whether it be a credit card that you know is way too high, whether, what, whatever it might be, you instantly start to think of who you are. And, and if you're in that other 26%, I don't want to discredit someone that's been financially wise. I think a lot of times when churches talk about money, it makes those that are wealthy feel uncomfortable, like they should feel guilty for having money. But I'm just curious for you to know this, that a lot of those folks that do have excess 
believe it or not, give a lot more than you might realize. And so it's, it's the faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. Also something that our Lord said. So again, the, who, what we, who we are is exposed not by what we give, but by what we keep. 57% of Americans don't have enough in their savings, currently speaking right now, to cover a $1,000 emergency expense. Now, you might be thinking that's interesting because, right, maybe you have that. Maybe you don't. I thought of this one, too, just because I worked in the credit card industry for a long time, and I got to see some balances that I didn't even realize could be your yearly salary, and people are making those on their credit cards. The average household credit card right now in the state of Missouri is $6,187. And your average car payment in the state of Missouri is $540 per car. Now, those are just numbers. Obviously, those are just numbers. Those aren't trying to grip you emotionally. But what we're about to do is look at a story in Mark chapter 10. And I think it's interesting when we get to see why is it that we have this great American imbalance when our Lord Jesus talks so much about the fault that, was, that, that wealth can have on our hearts. What, what, what is it about Jesus talking so much about money that he's trying to get our attention? I mean, if most of us in this room, more than half of us in this room, live paycheck to paycheck. And so we think instantly when someone asks for money, I have nothing to give. I've got a mortgage. I've got a car. I've got, my kids got to eat. I mean, there's instantly things that we think about. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty in this room. I'm simply trying to get us all on the same page that we all have a problem with money. Amen? And if you've got it figured out with money, then we're going to start a committee for you too, and you're going to teach all of us how to make, use our money wisely, okay? But I thought to myself, I was reading this, and, and you know, I, I think there's a conviction that a lot of us in the room, with that being said, think, is we think we aren't as rich as others, I use the word rich because I think that's a word that many of us, we think of a yacht, a mansion, a big bank balance, whatever it is, but we're rich in this room. I mean, look around us. We're rich in community. I mean, the average church in America is less than 75 people. We are very blessed. And here's another thing. I'm not saying that the church is financially hurting. I want to be very clear. You might be thinking, uh-oh, this means the church is poor. That's not what I'm saying today. I'm saying this because, again, Jesus talks a lot about money. And, and this is where we look at the great American imbalance, and we look at the words rich. And there's a, a, a graph that I want to show you. There's just a theory. Again, theories are just whatever. They're just theories, right? But most of us in this room don't think we are as rich and successful as others. And so what we do in life, and my young teenagers in the room, this is potentially what's going to happen, and we pray it doesn't. But the reality is the world in which we're in, it's a tendency to happen, at least to most of us, in our late 20s, in our 30s, and into our early 40s is there's a thing called social comparison theory. And social comparison theory is this graph. This graph is to help you think that most of us, when we think of being rich, whether it be you have a car, you've got more than two pairs of shoes, you've got a job, you've got a 401k, you've got this thing called PTO. What is that even, right? Like, whoa, that's a scarcity. But the idea is many of us think that a lot more people are richer than me. So we put ourselves down here and there's obviously, I mean, you saw the sign. So there's some people, obviously, like, they're not as good as me with money, but I'm also not as good as them with money. But the reality is the actual world would say it's just the opposite. We looked at this a few weeks ago about the amount of population, currently over 8 billion people in the United States, a good majority of them live off of less than $10 a day. So when we think about that, the actual world would say, those are people poorer than us, and we're actually way up at the top. And then obviously there's the 1%, the richer than me people. 
And I share this with you only because, again, it exposes our heart when we look at this story. When we look at this story in Mark chapter 10, I love what Martin Luther said, the great uh, Protestant reformer. He says this, there are three conversions a person must experience. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. And unfortunately, not all at the same time. So turn with me in Mark chapter 10 again, just to look back at this story. I guarantee you, if you've been in church probably longer than a year or two, you've heard the story of the rich young ruler. And if you're new to church, I want to welcome you again. You might be thinking, man, I've only heard that the church always talks about money, and the first time you come to church, they're talking about money. But I promise you, that is not our agenda. We don't need your money. We don't need your checkbook. So again, we look at a story, though, the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. And I share this story with us because I want to ask you a question. As we begin to look at this story, I want to ask you just a simple question. What, does, what more does this young man truly need? Just think about that question as we read the story. What more does this man truly need? Read with me in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And we'll read just a few verses and see his encounter with Jesus. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey, as he was setting out on his journey, being Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Well, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. That right there is just a moment we're going to stop and just look at. Of What more does this man truly need? I mean, let's just do a survey of what we've learned so far. Jesus is, is essentially being interrupted on a journey. I love the way that our Lord uses interruptions. But he meets a man that has the ability to keep all the commandments. So he's morally rich. He's able to do it. I mean, many of us in the room, right, if you're like, don't honor your mother and father, okay, honor the Sabbath. How are you doing on that one, right? And you instantly realize, well, I failed them, right? And the saying is, if you fail one, you failed them all. But this, this man has not. He's saying that I have kept those commandments, so he's morally rich. Now, other gospel stories, as they begin this, say that this man had incredible riches. And he was young, so you put those together. He was a rich, young ruler, so he had materials, he, he had what he needed. He had good status. He's a ruler. It means he had slaves. I mean, he was a person that had the ability to do great things. But it seemed to be when he hears about a savior or a person that can offer him something that can't be purchased, he's instantly inclined to ask, well, how do I inherit eternal life? Is it through the means? In other words, I think what this young man really starts off with is just wanting a good shoulder pat, saying, keep going. And I think that's many times what you and me do when we come to church, is we just want the preacher to say, keep going. No, everything you're doing is just fine. Keep all the commandments. Make sure to get to church early, right? Grab a donut, check your kids in, right? Throw your offering in the offering box, leave, 
share our social media, and you do all these things, right, to, to, to fit the mold of I'm following what I'm supposed to do. And look what Jesus says. Now let's turn back with me in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him. I love that. In other words, the Lord takes time to simply look at him. Some translations say that Jesus deeply looked at him. Deeply look at him. So in other words, it's, it's, a, it's a relationship that you have with someone that you're not just talking at them, you're talking to them. And that's what Jesus says, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. And this is where all of us get uncomfortable, right here. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This is, this is one of those stories that instantly, again, some of us, we, we, we begin to see Jesus ask this young man to go and sell everything he had ever accumulated. But the first thought that goes through his mind is not encouragement, but discouragement. How interesting that Jesus takes a moment to, to, to see the room, Right? I don't even know some of the, 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 the bigger items you could wear, right? But I just see a pair of J's sometimes, and I'm like, those aren't cheap. That's all I know, right? And we take a survey of, of Jesus' taking a survey of what he's seeing, going, there's still one thing, though, you lack. I mean, you've got it all figured out. You really do. But there's one thing you're lacking. Would you give it all away? And in Jesus' case, which is, by the way, this is a very interesting story in the Gospels. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, this is a very interesting story. We never see Jesus do this again to anybody else. Go and sell everything, right? He doesn't command it like we see in the rich young rule. We see Zacchaeus, we see all these other folks, but we don't see Jesus doing this. So I, I pose some questions to us in a little bit about what he's really saying. But there's this great truth and great lie that I want to talk about. Here's the great truth. Everything we own belongs to God. That's the great truth. Everything you own belongs to God. And some of you are, again, getting very uncomfortable, going, what do you mean? That's what I mean. Don't read between the lines. That's the line. Everything that you own belongs to God. There's a verse in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 and 18, and I'm just going to read it to you. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to even get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Again, what, 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 what Moses is saying to the Israelite people is don't you think for a moment anything that you've had the ability to accumulate was truly yours to get. Now, again, in, in the American culture, and I say that because I was raised where money was power, man. I mean, you gave a big donation, you instantly got your name on a building. I mean, that was, that was literally the way I was raised. You want a nice, you want good friendship? Have a really sweet car, right? Get a convertible if you can afford it. I mean, this was how I was raised, and at the time, it was everybody was doing the same thing. It was all keeping up with the Joneses. I say that because there's a great truth that everything that we own, we think belongs to us. And, I mean, you may hold the deed to it, but is it truly yours? I love the way that David Platt says it in one of his sermons on giving. He says, what's interesting about when we talk about finances and we talk about everything we own is we think that the Lord needs it. And it's just a little incremental that we'll give it to him. 
Friends, here we go. You ready for it? You bring nothing to the table. You know what you bring to, this, to the equation of grace and the gospel? Your sin. Welcome. Welcome. Did you bring your sin in today? Right? Not a $20 bill. Not a $20,000 check. But simply your sin. It's our sins that make this transaction glorious. And that's the reality is we bring nothing to the table. I know, and again, and, I'm, and if, you're, if you are a, a faithful giving member of this church, I am not trying to say stop giving. But I am saying this, that I think many of us in this room think if we just give enough money to make us feel better, then we'll be free of the strongholds that money has on us. And I think that in itself exposes that money has a stronghold. Because for this rich young man, what he's saying is simply give it up. I mean, this is the psalmist in Psalm 89 where he looks up and says, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, all the screws, the nuts, the bolts, you have founded them. That's where the psalmist's heart was at. I read a quote this week, and it was really funny, just because obviously the word's inflation is so, <laughs> the word inflation is being inflated. But the quote, I love it. This is what he said, and this book was written way before in like 2014, but this is what it said in the book. With the price of everything else going up these days, aren't you glad that the Lord hasn't increased the tithe to 15%? <laughs> I'm just going to let that one sit for a minute. But I have a question that I want to ask you because I think the church, and I say this again as Big C Church because I've, I've been in the church since I was a young teenager. Didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't see my parents giving, and I didn't get to hear their philosophy on giving to charities. But I have a question because I think the church does a poor job of talking about giving. It's either give us all you've got or you're not good enough type of thing. And I think what I want to do is just go over some interesting things I think found in the, in the Bible, early on in the Bible actually, and I want to show it to you this. So there's, there's this main conviction of do I have to tithe 10%? Do I have to tithe 10%? And you might be thinking, uh-oh. So I just want us to kind of do a quick survey of some scripture. We're going to look at Numbers 18. So if you want to turn there with me, turn to Numbers 18. And I just want to expose some things because, again, I, as a pastor, I, I don't ever want to claim to know all the answers. I think I'm the middleman right now of what God's Word says about money. I don't have a great philosophy of money in my own heart. I sure try, but I fail more often than I'd like to admit. And it's number 18, and I have this up here for us. It's going to be Numbers 18. I want us to look at three different tithes. Tithe just means 10. Okay? So let's just get the, the etymology out of the way. Tithe, 10. Okay, everyone good? Tithe means what? 10%. Okay, perfect. So Numbers 18, and we're going to go to verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So this is the first tithe that we see in the Bible, Numbers 18. This is called the Levitical tithe. These Families would not have any possessions, and so the church themselves would take up a, a tenth of their gross, whatever their product is, whatever they were farmers, they would give 10% to the Levites, the priests over Israel, and that's what they would live off of, live off of. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22. I'll give you just a second. Deuteronomy, just one book over. 14. And there's two of them in here. 
Deuteronomy 14, verses 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that He will choose to make His name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. I love this one. This is a tithe called the festival tithe. In other words, give 10% of not only the 10% to the Levites, but also another 10%. And what this is is going to be for a celebration, for a festival. And obviously, if you have read the Old Testament, there's a resounding thing that's always being celebrated, and that's the bondage of slavery being broken off the Israelites from Egypt. It's a constant celebration. Every year, they're celebrating this freedom from slavery. And again, so now 10% plus 10% is what? Oh, now we're up to 20%. Y'all like where this is going? Okay, now turn me just a few verses later in Deuteronomy 14.28. Just a few verses later. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithes of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Now this is every three years. Now, again, just because of good math, it's already done for us. We're going to give this every three years. So ultimately, every year, they're going to give a total of 23% of what they make. Now, the church is not instituting that today. I say that because a lot of churches will try to throw out, well, you've got to tie 10%. Sight and verse it. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of there. Are we going from the Old Testament? Because I just read to you three verses where it's 23%. So I say that. Now, I love the way that the, 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 the writer of that book I was telling you had a conviction. If Jesus does anything, he never lowers the bar, right? He typically would give us the ability to go above and beyond. Now, I'm just saying that because I wanted to expose where some people might think of a tithe. So in other words, if you give 10%, great. But just because you give 10% doesn't give you eternal security, right? Or some of the... Legalists will love to say fire insurance, right? If I give 10% of my income, it means that I'm truly going to heaven or whatever. I just say, share that because there's a few things, I think, that we live in, and that's it right there. My main conviction, though, is we give our first and best to God. That's, that's the idea for the Israelites, and this is the idea for us as we give our best to God. What I want to do is just give you a great lie that I think many of us look at. And again, I know we're, we're cooking now. We're cooking the great lie is this, that you can look to Jesus as a good teacher, but you don't have to look at him as Lord to obey. Did you catch what the, the man said to Jesus? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus instantly says, well, what do you make you think I'm good? You call me teacher, which means you're listening, but what, what makes you think that I'm Good. And so what I want to do is I just want to talk about this here because I think many of us come to church today. This is, our, this is the great lie of the enemy, okay? It's a seed of hell, and I'm just going to say it what it is, okay? That many of us come into this place, and you respect Jesus. You see the cross, and you're like, that's so commendable. I respect him. I, get, I'm, I mean, 
He's just so amazing. And we say all, it's just wordplay is all it is. You just become wordsmiths with Jesus. But here's the thing, the great lie is that you can do that, but not follow him as Lord over your life. This is the great lie. And I think those of us that know any elderly faith followers that have been following Christ their entire lives, they would say amen and amen. Because as we get what we would argue closer and closer to the end of our lives, the more we start to realize that we bring nothing to the table. And that is every breath we get from God is a blessing. Every time I watch my son take a breath, it reminds me that one day could stop. Now, I'm not trying to be too dramatic, but it's the truth. You and me, every deep breath that we take is a blessing and a gift from God. That's not just because Jesus is a good teacher. Even Islam believe Jesus is a good teacher. But is he Lord of your life? That's a whole different agenda when someone's Lord over your life. See, a good teacher is you sit in the seat and you listen and you think about it and you maybe take a recommendation from a teacher. That's what you should do. But see, a, a Lord is going to require something of you. Give it to me. I mean, do I have to? Do I respect you or do I have reverence for you? That's, that's a question that we ask ourselves today. There's three lessons that I want to look at. And again, we'll, we'll cook through these. And the first one is this, because the young man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's my first lesson from the rich young ruler. Jesus knows the depths of our desires. This rich man had two types of wealth. He had material wealth and moral wealth, but he still asks Jesus, what else? And Jesus tells him one thing you lack, to go and sell it all. And I, and I think to myself, what an interesting place to be with Jesus. Where this young man had one true desire, and that was essentially to try to earn eternal life. A noble desire, but as we learn in the church, is that obtainable? Is true salvation and freedom from our sins for eternity on your own doing? But yet, why is it we instantly think it is? And we try. And we work really hard. And we, we, gotta, we just got to finish the Bible reading plan. And we just got to go to that. We got to go to community groups. Baby, they said community groups. We got to go to community groups. Why? Because we're going to go to heaven, right? Like, we don't want to be like we're not a part of the group. And we instantly think it's about what we're doing and not who we're becoming. Again, it goes back to our serious conviction. Jesus knows the depths of our desires. I have a question for you. Are we willing to go to the depths of our desires with Jesus? Are we willing to go to the depths of our desires with Jesus? It may not be money for you, by the way. Maybe the, the true depth for you is simply trying to feel normal. This word we throw around of being normal, being liked, being accepted. And the desire to just simply be accepted is driving you nuts. You, instantly, you, you can't even be yourself in a conversation because you're always putting up a front with other people. I mean, Jesus knows the depths of our desires. We all want to be loved and accepted, right? The old verbiage is, if you really knew who I really was, you wouldn't want to be around me. Not with Jesus. This rich young man is looking straight with Jesus, and Jesus is looking at him. There's a depth of the desires that Jesus is exposing. And the young man, instead of potentially following Jesus, it even says, he would have been a part of the posse. He leaves disheartened and away sorrowful. 
As we continue this story, verse 22, I want to give you this second point. We can't grow if we refuse to let go. We can't grow if we refuse to let go. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And look how they responded with such a, a wild analogy of a camel and a needle. And you're like, can that even happen? The answer is no, folks. Okay, that's the whole point of what Jesus is trying to say. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Again, even the disciples had the question with the living God right in front of them. Jesus even then now looked at them. Notice the transition in the story. He first looks at the man asking the question. Then he starts looking at the disciples. There's two different, two different looks at in this story. He looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, it is. For all things are possible with God. And P Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything. You got to love Peter, man. He's always like, see, I told you guys we should, right? So Peter, first one that says, began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. And again, even Peter in this moment, I think, is wanting a pat on the back. Saying, right, well, he went away disheartened, but we're with you. And Jesus truly said, I, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And this wonderful line that will make us all go crazy but many who are first will be last and the last first. It's a complete what they call upside-down kingdom. That money doesn't get you in. Loyalty to Jesus gets you in. It's hard to gauge someone's loyalty, right? Is it truly by the power of the pocketbook, or is it truly just your commitment to Jesus? I love what Tim Keller says. He says, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. See, we can't grow if we refuse to let go. And see, Peter in this story, we see him, he's saying they let go. But Jesus uses this as a story to remind Peter that the gift of coming to Jesus, friends, is to get Jesus. If we lose sight of that, it's all in vain. It's all in vain. You know, generosity exposed, and I'll go through some of these just really quick. 2.5% of people, or excuse me, people on average give 2.5% of their income. 2.5%. An average of 10% of churchgoers tithe regularly. And of that 10%, an average of 77% of that gives 10% or more. I just I, I slow down because I see the time and, I, and I, I know that time is money. That's what we like to say in this world. Time is money. But I think we, we don't ever look at this enough to really understand the gravity of what we're talking about. I mean, the average churchgoer gives $886 a year, which again, great. I'm not saying don't do that. It's just exposing 
if the average household income in Missouri is $61,800, 2.5% of that is what's being tithed. I share that with you because verses like 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And we have a glorious inheritance from Jesus. This is just language that we love to spiritualize. You have everything that you need right now. You have life. You have breath. And if you don't have anything to eat for lunch, ask someone around you. I guarantee you they'll take you out to lunch. That's just the truth. So you've got your basic needs met. I say this with you because I have a question. What would happen if we stopped asking how much we could spare, because that's oftentimes how we view giving, and starting asking how much it would take? Not how much you could spare, but how much it would take. You know, I think it's, it's, it's saddened to me that we personally... You know, I was in church planning for a long time, which meant the annual budget for a church plant is $30,000. And, you know, there's a little bit of that that goes to the salary. Everything else goes to operations, building, keep the air conditioning on. It's crazy that we think that God can change the world with our spare change. When, when the reality is I think we don't realize and slow down that what if it's not just merely what we can spare, but asking what it will take. I think there's a, there's a question that we have to ask ourselves of how in the world can we believe the, the, that God has called the church to change the world? Yet we're offering spare change. And that's the reality of the heart when we look at money. It's, it's what we can spare. I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says, my service will be judged not by how much I have done, but by how much I could have done. In Edward Heath, in that book, God and Money, there's a quote he says in there, As a church, we are not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. There's a generosity shift, I'm calling it. And this quote has changed my entire life. And I mean that, not just trying to be dramatic. Here's the statement. The question isn't how much to give. The question is, how much do I need to keep? Not how much I could give. Just pastor, tell me, do you, not, do you want 23% or not, right? Just say it and we'll do it, right? And that's not what I'm saying. The question truly is, how much do I need to keep? And I even say that with our, with our volunteering. I mean, every week you're given a bulletin. And I say this only out of love, okay? I say this out of love. This is just, I get to see those every week. There's a little spot in there, by the way, called sign up to volunteer, and do you know how many times I've seen that box get checked since we started that about eight months ago? I'm just going to leave that there. Because, again, you, you, you want to give your money but not your time. I'm here to think, you want to know a great currency in the church today? You ready for it? The greatest currency in the church today? Commitment. Commitment. Just stay committed. Don't step down from ministry. Step up into ministry. And here's the thing, this all can't keep going if it's just relying on me and the staff. And I don't say this anything out of guilt. I say this out of true love. It takes a village to do this. This is a church. This is the beauty that you have a gift. Whatever it is, hey, listen, the Bible's very clear. All of us do have a gift. Some of us can be a guitar player. Sure, great, play music. Some of you have a, you're just smart. Some of you are just really compassionate. There's a need for every one of those things. I say that because I think so many times we look at the church as just, well, that's, 
That's just what I go to give. But the reality is, is what can we go to church on a Sunday morning and to give to others and to realize, what, what are we keeping? Like what, what truly is ours and belongs to us? Are you motivated by guilt or the gospel? Are you motivated by guilt or the gospel? Our third thing, lesson from the, the rich young ruler, is only Christ can take our inability and transform our identity. Only Christ can take our inability and transform our identity. If we could all leave here today going, I know I'm going to be saved because I said a prayer and yada yada. Here's, here's the thing, church, we've missed the goal. Have you had an encounter with Christ enough where you look at whatever's in your pocketbook and realize it doesn't even matter what I have, he's worth it. So many times we read verses like deny yourself and we're like, oh, that's so heroic. No, it's not heroic. It's what we're called to do. It's the J-O-B. We deny ourselves because the Lord knows if we think we can do it, if we think we can do 5%, then we can do 100%. And Jesus is saying, especially in Ephesians 2, I mean, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, but it's a gift from God so that no man can boast. I mean, Paul's not pulling any punches. He's pulling all the punches there. Of like, you think you're really getting in all by yourself. So again, our big idea is we expose who we are, not by what we give, but by what we keep. Four questions as the band comes up. There's just four questions I want to ask you. And I appreciate you guys sticking with me on that. Four evaluating questions. Do you want to follow Jesus for his advice? Or as the leader of your life? Advice or leadership? Do you want to simply hear Jesus' recommendations? Or obey his requirements? Do you truly believe that Jesus' plan for your life is better than any possession you can purchase? And do you see giving as an obligation to get or an opportunity to give? Because see, my pastoral hope, and I'll give a moment for those questions, but my pastoral hope, I mean that for Westside Church in 2024, I mean this is that we not only see Jesus as the Savior of our sins, but as the Savior of our very selves, from our very selves. If you think you don't need saving, you're in a good place to be reminded that you do. You can't buy it. You can't get the promotion to get it. We're all promoted to the kingdom in here. And that's for us in this room today as, as we pray. I want to just close in that moment, asking yourself those questions, advice or a leader. Pray with me, Jesus. A topic like this I know is daunting for many to hear. But Lord, I pray that by the power of the gospel, we see the freedom that our finances can, can give. Lord, I pray for us in this room today that, that we see the rich young ruler in this story walks away. And Lord, I think many of us, we do the same thing when it comes to topics like this. It becomes of what I can offer but Lord Jesus, today we proclaim in a place like this, we have nothing to offer but our dirty sins. And so Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to cleanse us from the inside out, whether it be our hearts, our minds, or our checkbook, cleanse us. Regardless of what we did yesterday, regardless of what's in the mail on its way, I pray, Lord, that you would give us freedom from the bondage that finances has on many. I pray that you would give us an understanding of everything you've given us as a gift from you. Every penny is given from you.
Let us be good stewards. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, not holding back, but showing us how to have eternal life. And that's the chase and follow after you with everything we have. If our money's holding us down, free us from it. We want to run. We want to go straight to the cross. Let that be our goal. Let that be our five-year plan is to follow you with everything we have. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.